this, suffice to say, means, yes, the shareholder is still important, but no company today will be around in 30 years if that is the lens that they are looking through to make major decisions. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. Social change doesn't happen in a vacuum. The parts we can see, people in the streets, wall-to-wall media coverage, perhaps even landmark legislation, can sometimes feel abrupt. But these visual cues are like an erupting volcano. Before it explodes, it may simmer for decades, building pressure and moving slowly through pockets of the earth before finally erupting. Along the way, there are champions of change who often toil behind the scenes and push the flywheel of change until it gathers momentum and eventually moves on its own. One such person is Susan McPherson. Susan McPherson is the founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, a consulting and communication firm that advises organizations on sustainability, corporate responsibility, and empowerment. Her client roster is a who's who of household name corporations, NGOs, and some passion projects that are near and dear to her heart. Looking to start a social initiative in your organization, but not sure how or when? Better call Susan. Worried that your efforts will seem inauthentic and performative? Better call Susan. Interested in partnering with another organization to bring your sustainable vision to life? You know the rest. Here's my conversation with McPherson Strategies founder and CEO, Susan McPherson. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with high-profile corporate executives who lead by example to answer the age-old question, can you do well by doing good? I'm Jed Morey, CEO and founder of Morey Creative Studios and executive producer of the social justice podcast, Newsbeat, and the host of Grow for Good. Today, we're bridging the gap between the different personas we typically speak to on our show by tapping into one of the brightest minds in corporate social responsibility. Susan McPherson, as you heard in the introduction, is the founder of McPherson Strategies, and she joins us on Grow for Good to talk about the growing interest in social responsibility. Susan, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. McPherson Strategies is on the cutting edge of corporate responsibility and sustainability initiatives, and particularly empowerment of female executives. But Susan, if it's okay with you, can you give us an overview of your firm and what started you down this path? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm happy to give an overview of the firm. It's seven years old. Uh, We are a boutique communications consultancy, but we only communicate about social impact, whether that means communicating to a company's employees or an NGO's funders and volunteers. So it's very specific about an organization, the message that that organization wants to send, the vehicle in which it wants to send it, and to its targeted audiences. Hopefully that makes a bit of sense, but think of traditional PR firms, advertising firms, they all use various means to get messaging out. We do the same thing using a variety of the same tools, social, digital, earned media, but we only do it for the sake of the transmission of a social impact message. We build a lot of coalitions between companies and nonprofits, all for the greater good. And our clients range from Fortune 500 to some startups and many NGOs and nonprofits. I founded the firm at the 
early, bright young age of 48. Um, so I clearly didn't have this burning desire my entire life to be an entrepreneur. But when I look back at the last seven years, I couldn't imagine a, a better path. I worked for um, many, many years in corporate America prior to that, but always had a part of me that was involved in impact, in philanthropy, in driving social change through both nonprofit and political organizations that I belong to. And we're based in New York and we have folks in Chicago, but only 10 people strong. Awesome. So I know you represent a, a wide range of organizations, but one of the ones that we're concerned with the most on this show is the for-profit company. Because there's an idea in the U.S. in particular that the shareholder rules above all mm -hmm. and that nothing should prevent you from driving shareholder value within legal parameters, of course, but that this relentless drive to profitability has come at the expense of something else. Maybe it's the environment or diversity initiatives, workplace safety, happiness, or some other metric that somehow has to suffer in the pursuit of profit. So I kind of wanted to start at the beginning of a typical engagement with a for-profit company. Mm -hmm. When a company approaches you for counsel and advice, what are their typical concerns right off the bat? Why are they coming to you? Well, interestingly enough, I would love to say we have a typical engagement. Our, our for-profit clients range from Salesforce and Dell to Tiffany & Co. to Cognizant Corporation to Republic of Tea. Um, we worked with JCPenney, um, Ann Inc., you know, and I could go on and on. Obviously, every single one of those engagements was, was different, but they came to us specifically for the communications of a program they were launching or the desire to launch a new program and needed to understand how does it fit within the authenticity of the company. So it is very, again, we're very, very targeted, but in most cases, for instance, I can tell you Dell, last year, one of the projects we did with Dell, they were crafting their 2030 goals. So they brought us on to help them push them to be bolder, help to provide oversight, help to make sure that they were setting the stage to be a leader, to drive other companies to step up and do the same thing. And then after that first part was done, how do they communicate that to their 40,000 employees? Because if you can't get your employees excited about a particular social impact program or campaign or partnership, it's going to be very difficult for you to also then take it out to the broader universe. Yeah, actually, I have a question for you about top-down versus bottom-up. So maybe it's, it's a good time to talk about that. When a company in the, in the latter example that you gave comes to you and says, we just want to do better, but it, we want it to be authentic. Are they using the term authentic or is that something that you're trying to instill in them? And then how do you go about, I guess, discovering what it is that they might want to do? Well, you look at the company's history, you look at the space that they're marketing in, you look at their customers, very similar to the way you would do any kind of campaign, right? I mean, just a traditional ad campaign. If you're a cosmetic company and you're doing a campaign about their new lipstick, you're not going to, you know, have football players in the picture, right? I mean, just crazy example, but you really have to dig in and understand the ethos of the business. You have to do, I mean, I hate the terminology, but stakeholder interviews where you talk to people within the company so that you start to get a feeling. And you also look what, what they've done in the past in terms of philanthropic and social and environmental endeavors. Yes, sometimes we will be the first ones to bring up authenticity, but you know, that notion of shareholder equity and shareholders rule all is 
almost dated at this point. I mean, I was interviewed last year when the business roundtable declared that, you know, no longer is shareholder value the top concern. Well, I was asked, was that a reaction to what's happening in the world or is that very visionary? And I felt it was much more a reaction because of all the forces we see at work, you know, the the advent of transparency thanks to social media, the the coming of age of Gen Z and millennials who want to be working for purpose-driven companies and companies that put a mission as important as, as their clients. The fact that no more can we kind of like look the other way at our supply chains because climate change is connecting all of us. When something happens in Bangladesh or in Southeast Asia where we manufacture jeans or shirts, when there's a massive tsunami, that's going to affect the people and the products that are being created in the supply chain. So all of this, suffice to say, means, yes, the shareholder is still important, but no company today will be around in 30 years if that is the lens that they are looking through to make major decisions. Yeah. So without naming any names, have you ever been approached by an organization that may have had the best of intentions from a leadership perspective, but whose business model just simply didn't lend itself to a sustainable or perhaps a socially responsible strategy? You know, we haven't in my firm in the last seven years. Um, however, when I worked at Fenton Communications, which had grown up in the, in the very progressive NGO world, David Fenton did the campaign, What Would Jesus Drive, back in the 80s to get, you know, big automotive to start creating, you know, more fuel-efficient automobiles. He got Alar to be removed from Apple's. Um, but very much working on the activist side rather than the corporate side, I joined Fenton in 2010 to help create a corporate practice. And because of the tradition of the firm, when certain companies wanted to hire my team, there were people at the firm that felt, you know, business was evil, right? And I understand that, but I am of the school that, you know, business, just like NGOs, are made up of people and none of us are perfect and we'll always make mistakes. The tact I take now, you know, for instance, if a Chevron or a Shell came calling, I would have to do some deep thinking, but I do have to say, I drive a car and I buy gasoline. So it would be almost hypocritical of me to say, no, I won't work with you. But I wouldn't work with them to help market their gasoline. And the, the, I would work with them to maybe help, again, if they are truly putting investment dollars and investment for the future in renewables. And quite frankly, if they're not, they aren't going to be around because, you know, there is going to come a time and I don't know that time, I'm not, you know, an environmental scientist, but there will no, no longer be fossil fuels that can be extracted from the earth. So let's talk about some of the uh, initiatives that you've put together, because one of the services that you provide is actually connecting companies in, I won't call them joint ventures, but these joint initiatives. Yeah. Can, can you give us an example of, of a powerful partnership that might perhaps inspire our listeners who want to implement a change initiative, but might not have the wherewithal to do it entirely on their own? Well, I mean, this was a big project, and this actually came working on with our client, the National Abortion Rights Action League, where we joined forces between NARAL, Planned Parenthood, and ACLU to galvanize the private sector. And we were able to secure the signatures and the approvals of 360 CEOs from very large companies to mid and small size companies that signed on to state that the abortion bans were actually bad for business. And that was signed last summer. It got tremendous media pickup. 
It was the first time that business had stepped up for anything with regards to women's reproductive health. And there was a full page ad in the New York Times with all the signatures. What was fascinating about that is talking to business, you had to talk to them from the pragmatic standpoint, not the human rights, not, you know, a moral or amoral or anything like that. But it was what we were seeing was what had been, you know, four years of companies stepping up for various what were once very controversial issues, like everything from LGBTQ equality to you saw CEOs stepping up fighting for gun violence. And oh, by the way, last week you had every Fortune 500 CEO step up in support of Black Lives Matter, making massive funding commitments. Um, and now you're having a real look inside, you know, what, what's up? What are you doing to hire people of color? What are you doing to put people of color in management? What are you doing to change your recruiting practices? What are you doing to make it more comfortable within your organization to have people of color thrive? So anyhow, I'm talking way too much, but- No, you're not, because <laughs> so, that's actually one of the directions I wanted to, to travel with you because there's so many uh, impactful and it feels like a historical moments that we're living in right now, watershed moments, mm-hmm. whether uh, you know it started with the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, urgent calls all over the world to reduce carbon emissions, even the Supreme Court this week upholding LGBTQ rights. Are we in a moment based upon kind of of your experience? Do you think we're in a moment and are these movements somehow connected to a higher consciousness in business? Meaning, are they all interconnected and feeding off one another? I'm not a sociologist. I'm, I'm not a philosopher or an anthropologist. However, I think what we're seeing is a reaction to collapsing institutions that we at one point in time put our trust and hope in, you know, national governments, faith-based institutions. And that has left a gaping hole for business leaders to step in and take stands and do the right thing. Will it last? You know, will we morph back in if we get, you know, new leadership, whether in this election campaign, will we become, you know, when we start looking to local governments, municipalities to help guide us. But there has been this dearth of leadership, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. So this has provided that much needed space. So I do think it is very much in reaction to the last five or six years. I do think it's also in a reaction to the fact that the world is no longer interdependent. I mean, we are so dependent on anything that happens anywhere else in the world today. And that wasn't the case 50 years ago. We manufactured the majority of what we ate and what we used and wore in this country. Well, obviously that has changed. And with the climate, we very much know, you know, what happens over there eventually happens here. So I I think it's a variety of things. I can't predict if it's going to, you know, last well into the future. But I do think the genie is out of the bag in the sense that there is right now and for the foreseeable future an expectation that companies are going to take stands on issues. CEOs are expected to stand up and shareholders as well as customers expect it. Now, I wonder from your perspective then, when you're, I I learned a new word during the social uprising that was mirroring what was happening in the streets during Black Lives Matters, and that is this idea of being, quote, performative. So you're, you're right there on the front lines of messaging, and, you know, maybe you're bringing out a message that has high relevance, but all of a sudden there's something else that's happening in the world 
that could be, mm-hmm. you know, uh, either not derailing it, but just, sh- you know, shining a different light elsewhere. Have you had to deal with clients that have really good initiatives, but then are being called out in their own right for maybe not standing up to them or looking quite like the things that they're trying to accomplish? And is that changed the nature of your engagements? Thankfully, no. Um, What we have seen is a number of clients have to kind of pause because it's not the right time right now to maybe launch a campaign or a program. And in deference to what's happening, companies have had to pivot. You know, if they were going to be launching, let's say something around stopping gun violence, you know, let's put that on hold for a few months and really step up and see what we can do to really not just write a check to to an organization serving people of color, but what can we actually do that's going to lead to systemic change? We're going to take a very quick break when we come back. I actually want to pivot to your media platform, uh, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back to Grow for Good. We are talking with Susan McPherson and McPherson Strategies, which uh, helps guide corporations, NGOs, nonprofits, many types of organizations in their corporate social responsibility initiatives and other initiatives as well. And Susan, I wanted to actually pivot for a moment to a platform of your own. You have this fantastic media platform to broadcast these ideas and messages in something called McPherson Memo Live. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the show, how to find it and register for some upcoming sessions? Sure. Well, first of all, it kind of was birthed out of the McPherson Memo, which is a newsletter that my company started about a year ago that comes out bi-weekly. And I would be honored and grateful if your listeners wanted to subscribe to that. It's really chock full of, of what's happening in the social impact world, in addition to some you know fun shout outs to new podcasts and to books and to things that, that the team sees. And it's a, it's a true team effort. But back in March, when um, the COVID pandemic became our daily life, I wanted to put something positive into the world. And I felt that the best way was to showcase the work, um, mainly of corporate corporations who were stepping up to not only help their own organizations and their own employees, but helping the broader community. And I knew that seeing the immediate, like, you know, a thousand Zoom meetings we all had all of a sudden within a week, that it needed to be something very short and sweet and almost whimsical in a sense. Um, That may be a a little bit over extreme, but, you know, to really just be a friendly break. Since then, we've twice weekly had a variety of very senior executives ranging from Sesame Workshop to Intel to Facebook to Comcast even the the woman who's founded Fortune's Race Ahead, um, to talk about what their organization is doing in the time of COVID. And and of course, obviously now with what's happening with the reckoning in in racial relationships, we are also having various individuals talk about what their companies are doing in terms of stepping up to support people of color. Your audience can find it. They're all archived at the McPherson Strategies Facebook page but you also can find them on the McPherson Strategies website for the entire spring. 
as well as the schedule through the end of August. Excellent. You know, in watching several of the episodes, it struck me that you've, whether it's purposeful or not, because you've created this phenomenal interconnected network of, of powerhouse executives and, and many of them, if not most of them, women. Has this network taken on a life of its own in some ways that is maybe bigger than you intended? Do you see the McPherson sphere of influence uh, having its own momentum? Um, well, that would be a good thing, I would imagine. Um, but, you know, I, I, this sounds so funny, but they're all friends. And there's nothing, you know, we're all so lonely right now. I live alone with my, my dog who's increasingly um, sick of me and we're like an old married couple. But for me, it's, it's nice because I get to have a nice chat with people I admire and people who inspire me. And so I want to share them with my broader community. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, from a business perspective, it helps keep us relevant. I think anybody who is charged with having to keep a company afloat knows that we're not out speaking at conferences. We're not, you know, going to lunch and, you know, doing traditional business cultivation. So I knew my number one focus was to keep my employees, you know, paid and keep the business humming. And, and so this was one way I thought I could keep us relevant. The, the friendship angle comes through because everyone seems to be very relaxed. And it's always interesting to see everybody in their own environment at home. Yeah. And I think that sort of kind of levels the playing field to some respects. In other respects, it's actually difficult. You know, there's there's a lot of research being done on on how it does not level the playing field. And there's thing, there's work that needs to be done there. But one of the takeaways that I had from uh, watching your shows was that this is actually a really great time to do more work and to be more introspective. And I, it, it's almost like you see, you can actively watch the soul search, the corporate soul searching occurring before your eyes when you speak to people and they're very passionate right now. And the messages seem to be resonating. Do you feel that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not doing this as a journalist and I remind them of that. And the other thing is, is obviously, in many cases, some of these companies, PR folks get a little nervous, right? You know, because they want to make sure the person's on brand. But once we talk to them and kind of show the angle that we're coming at, it's really it's, it's an opportunity for them to shine. If I was coming at it from a journalistic perspective, which I entirely, you know, I think is, is a very good and important and needed practice. But then the dynamic would be very, very different. No, we, we appreciate the distinction, but it, I don't think it minimizes actually a lot of the great work that you can see. And the way you're doing it right now seems to put a face to these initiatives mm -hmm. that makes them more uh, wholesome and authentic to a degree. So yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's probably important for their messages to get out there in the way that you're convening them. Sure. And, you know, when we started it, we never would have thought we were going to be going, you know, booking through August. and. I'm having a funny feeling that it's probably going to continue. I would think. Uh, you know, but um, let's hope that by, you know, September or October, we might be able to actually sit down together with masks donned, of course, but, you know, who knows? So let's circle back to this idea of top down or bottom up and authenticity that we, we kind of touched on in the beginning of the show. Because you were quoted in a, a Guardian article on corporate responsibility. And I want to point out something you said specifically, because I think it drives to the heart of movements writ large. You said, I think this kind of competition is a win-win for business and the greater good, provided they are authentic and take substantive action. So it's that part about authenticity. How do you ensure buy-in when you have a new organization come to you, particularly for the bigger organizations that you consult for? 
if you could go back to that, that I know you don't like the word, but that stakeholder messaging and the buy-in, are efforts like these more successful when they are bottom-up, top-down, or does it have to be blended? I, you know, I would go for the blended. Um, I, you know, we're living in a time where employees have more power than they ever did before. Again, because they have their own bully pulpits in many cases. And, uh, you know, a company can no longer kind of forbid people from using their social channels. The best thing is, is to, to actually encourage them to use it. But, you know, it's a risk. And in many companies, people own the stock of the company, meaning they own part of the company. So, you know, I'm a big believer is if a company is taking on a particular campaign, whether it's taking on a, a social impact initiative, whether it's, you know, funding a particular cause and then galvanizing their employees to, you know, volunteer and raise money on their own, whether they're matching dollars for a particular cause, whether they're deciding they really want to clean up their supply chain and no longer work with suppliers that uh, perhaps are not following a certain rigidity with in terms of, you know, package reduction and water reduction. I think if you can have, you know, the C-suite, certainly the board level and employees buying in, you are going to have, I mean, first of all, a much more successful project. You're also, it's going to come across to the audience you're targeting as much more cohesive and it'll generally probably resonate better. I mean, I joke, but years ago, there was this crazy campaign where KFC, previously known as, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, signed up for Pinktober, you know, October uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month to get a free bucket of chicken for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Well, you know, I am not a nutritionist, but I just don't think if you are suffering from breast cancer or you have a family relation, a relative who has it, that fried chicken is really what you want to be putting at the top of your menu. Not the top, no. And the partnership was between the Susan B. Komen organization and, and KFC. And, you know, to me, that is a classic example of what you don't want to do. I mean, granted, that's a very dated, it is a long time ago, and I'm sure nothing like that could ever happen again today. But I do think, you know, if you have buy-in from the top and you have employees that are excited and ready to jump in, you're going to have a much better result. All right. So let's talk about the flip side of the quote that I read which is uh, the competitive aspect. Do you think that it actually makes companies better and more competitive because they're more closely aligning with an audience that maybe they wouldn't have reached before? Do you think that buyers or consumers are more compelled to align themselves with brands and companies that are doing good things? Oh, well, I mean, just look at survey after survey after survey. Look at the Edelman barometer, look at Deloitte, look at Harris and Nielsen, there's poll after poll. But it's not just that they're buying more. You're also going to be getting the best candidates coming to you to apply for jobs. You're also going to get employer, employees that want to stay at the company. I mean, these are all important elements of a company's bottom line, right? Yeah. So let's talk about, I guess, from a boots on the ground perspective, what does an engagement in an ideal setting look like when a company brings on McPherson? What areas of the company do you touch? I know they're not typical engagements, but uh, if you could give us sort of a use study of how broad and maybe diverse your efforts are as a good example, so people can kind of wrap their minds around what this actually looks like. <laughs> well, there's many case studies on our website, so I would encourage folks if they, if they have interest to go there. But also, very often, the head of communications, of course, 
Obviously, if the company has a head of sustainability, a head of CSR, a head of corporate citizenship, a, a chief responsibility officer, a chief sustainability officer, often that person is involved. And in many cases, the CMO or the vice president of marketing. And occasionally, we'll have somebody from you know environmental operations if, if we're dealing with kind of what the company's doing in terms of its environmental footprint. And sometimes HR, because HR wants to be able to certainly use whatever the company's doing in its recruitment. But again, it's, you know, this is the challenge. And I really, 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 my life and my team's life would be much easier if we had like the templated, like, here's what we do. Da, 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 da. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> then we could just go into rote, but you know, there has never been one. And maybe that's what makes the, the work so interesting. But it definitely is a blend. And if it's not somebody at a VP or, you know, that, and again, it depends on the size of the company. That is important because you want to make sure that the company is in it. Right. So I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but let's get outside of your portfolio so that people can kind of wrap their minds around uh, something that is not of your doing. When you look out into the broader corporate community, what companies out there are are serial do-gooders in the best way possible? Like one of the examples we always give is Patagonia because mm-hmm. it's it's enduring and they evolve. It's not just that goodness is at their core and their founding. Their evolution of thought is remarkable. They're always on top of these initiatives. So when you look out to the broader landscape, who do you look at and say, they're doing it really, really well? Well, I I am a huge fan of Ben and Jerry's, um, but obviously people who may be of the conservative bent politically might be horrified by that. You know, when you look at the ethos of the company and the um, history of the brand, they have stayed on brand since Ben and Jerry were opened their first shop in, in Burlington, Vermont, and then the second one in Saratoga in the late 80s. They have not missed a beat. You know, they brought their customers along with them. And there's a real sense of the brand in everything they do. You know, I have been very impressed with how Microsoft in the last few years has done a 360. You know, Steve Ballmer, after Bill Gates ran that company, and he was a big sales guy, right? He was like, you know, he would get up on stage and, you know, at conferences and be like, let's go get them, that kind of attitude. It wasn't kind of the attitude that build community. Instead, it was like create competition between people. Satya, the new CEO that came in a few years ago, who, you know, had to really remake a company since its heydays in the 90s, really became very focused on corporate responsibility, on diversity and inclusion, with a bit of a softer human approach, and, you know, has turned the company around financially. And interestingly enough, the head of CSR reports directly into his colleague, who's the president of the company. Smith is his last name, and I'm spacing That's on interesting. Him. Yeah. And, you know, and they compete with Salesforce, who also I have the utmost respect for. And both companies provide a huge matching. So they have a very, um, you know, their entire workforce are very benevolent in terms of writing checks. And, you know, Microsoft has been doing a lot in terms of supporting refugees worldwide, because inevitably they will be hiring refugees. You know, and it's interesting, I am a huge fan of Patagonia, but when we ran the campaign last summer, don't ban equality, they had a female CEO. They did not sign the campaign. Mm. Now, would I shame them for that? Not at all, because I am pragmatic enough to know that every company is at a different stage of its journey. To me, shaming doesn't help anyone. 
But, you know, it's interesting because when people say to me, don't you just love Patagonia? And I'm like, well, yes, but, you know, companies pick the issues that are really important to them and they focus on them. It may not align with things that I'm passionate about, but I'm not going to hold that against them. You know, it's, it's when they're not doing anything that that's when I have my, my radar goes up and I'm like, hmm. Right. But, you know, all the B Corps, I think, have done, you know, a tremendous job. I mean, I, I look back to the early days of the body shop seventh generation, you know, they really kind of set the stage. Um, and now there's, more, I think, more than 4,500 B Corps. You know, even Danone, the huge, you know, yogurt and dairy company is a B Corp. Unilever is transitioning to a B Corp. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think every single company is at a different journey. And I'm thrilled because what used to be a nice to have is now a must have. And when we talk about low to no profit companies and whether or not we would organize as that, I said, you know, I, I ran a newspaper for 15 years. I didn't have to be organized as a no profit entity. I already was that. So I, I lived that. <laughs> and I could also tell you some stories about that Ben and Jerry's in Saratoga Springs because I'm a Skidmore grad from the early 90s. And uh, well, I spent I a lot of time outside of that Ben and Jerry's, but probably not in the way that they would have uh, admired. Well, can I just tell you a funny story? Because I grew up near Albany and I went to the opening and I'll never forget because there was Ben and there was Jerry and they were dishing up scoops of ice cream. And I got to the front of the line and I, you know, there were six flavors, which of course seemed like amazing back then. And I, I was like, well, which one, you know, which is the best? And I can't remember if it was Ben or Jerry, but let's just say it was Jerry. He dug in uh, and got the scoop and he said, this is Heath Bar Crunch. If you don't like it, you have ice cream for the rest of your life on me. And when I tasted it, there was absolutely no way that I could say I didn't like it. Right. And it's funny because I met him in person at TED, uh, I'd say like maybe seven years ago. And I still remember that like, you know, it's almost 30 years ago and, and just the memory. And he, of course, laughed. You know, he, he certainly didn't remember it, but it was a, a very unique. And who would have known at that point, right? Well, he would have remembered it if uh, he gave you free ice cream for life because that right. would have shown up on their balance sheet for a long time. <laughs> hmm. um, I, I'm pretty tiny, so it would hopefully. <laughs> you know, you mentioned some incredible companies before, and I appreciate the perspective that you just offered on Patagonia, too, because nobody is entirely good. Nobody's entirely bad. Yeah. And there's room for improvement for for all of us. And I think yeah. that's. As you say, sh shaming is maybe sometimes necessary, but when, when there's an authentic attempt to really grow and to evolve, sometimes, as we always say internally, you, know, you have to meet people where they are and then move from there, hopefully at a steady progressive pace forward. But you know, one of the areas that we have moved into, and I'm curious because a few of the companies that you just mentioned are at the forefront of this initiative, one of the areas that we moved into as an agency is uh, digital inclusion and accessibility, realizing that more than 15% of the entire global population lives with a disability and that the internet is not always the friendliest place for that. Some of the companies you mentioned are doing really, really good work. Oh, Microsoft is massively yeah. putting, and, and, you know, I first learned about it with their Super Bowl ad, which was outstanding, but yes. Yeah, Microsoft, Salesforce, there, there are some people that are really thinking in a highly evolved way about accessibility. And I'm wondering if that has made it to your desk and if that's being uh, something that, that people are calling for and wondering about. Are we at the beginning of maybe a, a new revolution in those terms? Well, I think 
think we are, it, it is all about every voice counts now, whether it's refugees, whether it's people of color, whether it's indigenous peoples, whether it's people who have autism. I mean, I think it's, it's time for the fact that there is no perfect human. Like we all are important. We're all, no matter who we are, what color we are, what size we are, what shape we are, we, what age we are, we all need to have a voice. And that voice needs to be heard in business, in government, in any, any institution. And those voices are what is going to make everything more innovative, more accessible, uh, and quite frankly, more interesting. Yeah. Susan, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to be on the show today. Before we go, are there any thoughts that you can offer our audience? Uh, maybe some advice to companies that are looking to weigh in on social issues, but they don't necessarily have a history of doing so. Do you have any first step advice, some baby step advice? Yeah, I would look, look inward. I would talk to your employees and give them a vote at the table because inevitably they are your most important asset. And quite frankly, they are your company. So whatever uh, issue you decide to step up for, whatever cause you decide to represent, if you have their buy-in in the beginning, it is going to be, you know, 150 times more successful down the road. Amazing. Susan, where can people find you? How can they connect with you? Give us the rundown of all the, the public facing sources that you want to list for us. Well, if anybody wants to come and wave to me, I live in Brooklyn Heights. In all right. But our company website is nickpstrategies.com. And I'm on all the you know various platforms, uh, Instagram and Twitter at SusanMcP1. And anybody can email me um, to our website. I'm usually very responsive. I encourage anyone who has questions. Um, we actually just posted two new jobs. We're hiring a senior account executive and an account coordinator. And the person can work anywhere. So I encourage if, if folks want to get into this world that they could take a look at those roles. Outstanding. Thank you for your time today. As always, we appreciate our audience for tuning in. Uh, and if you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moreycreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, like us, rate us, or review us wherever you download your podcasts. Susan McPherson, thank you again for appearing on Grow For Good. Stay healthy and the best to you and all your loved ones. Well, thank you. I was thrilled to join you and I will definitely be a fan going forward of this podcast. Appreciate you. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.